Hi everyone. Um, last Sunday evening's uh, sermon on uh, a theology of ecology um, uh, started before the record button was pressed and so the beginning of the session where I, I read a poem uh, got missed off. So I thought I would add it to the beginning of this recording um, and then allow the sermon to continue on after that. So here's the poem. It's called Hire Car by uh, John Cooper Clarke. Double park, don't lock the door, push the pedals through the floor, give it loads and then some more, it's a hire car baby. Grip the stick, grind the gears, watch that distance disappear, never yours in a thousand years, it's a hire car baby. Hire car, hire car, why would anyone buy a car? Bang it, prang it, say ta-ta, it's a hire car baby. Show this motor no respect. Bump it, dump it, call, collect. What else do the firm expect? It's a hire car, baby. Drive the loser anywhere. Drive it like you just don't care. Put it down to wear and tear. It's a hire car, baby. Pray the person who hired it last didn't drive it quite so fast. Its best days are in the past. It's a hire car, baby. Rent it, dent it, bang it, prang it, bump it, dump it, scorch it, torch it, crash and burn it, don't return it, lost deposit, let them earn it. It's a hire car, baby. Uh, now, uh, hopefully we don't treat our hire cars uh, quite like that, but it is how lots of people treat them, uh, isn't it? If you go and buy a second-hand car and, and you realise that its previous owner was a hire car company, well, you may well want to leave it alone because of the way that people tend to treat them. Uh, and as we come and think about how humanity has treated our planet over the centuries, uh, well, maybe that higher car analogy doesn't seem too uh, inappropriate. I, I think humanity has often viewed the planet like, um, uh, you know, it's ours to use as long as we like for as long as we've got it. Uh, and it's not going to last forever anyway. And everyone else is abusing it. So we might as well do it too. And anyway, we'll be handing it on to someone else soon enough. So it's not really going to be our problem. In, in other words, um, we, we've not we've not treated the planet like a classic car. You know, like like uh, like a lovely E-type Jag, you know, or, or, or something like that. Something that we're privileged to be the custodian of, and 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 we want to use it in such a way that we pass it on to the next steward of it in a better condition than we received it. We, we don't really treat the planet like that, or we've not done historically. We've treated it more like a hire car, uh, I think. And and so um, whether we're kind of climate campaigners this evening or whether we're climate skeptics this evening or whether we're just a bit kind of climate confused <laughs> you know trying to figure out the facts from the fiction um, I think what is undeniable unless you're a fairly hardened conspiracy theorist I'd suggest um, is is that the climate is changing you know ice caps are melting sea levels are rising species are vanishing droughts and famines are increasing people are dying um, and, and these are not just the opinions of some kind of scaremongering campaigners. They're, they're actually the conclusions of those who are, who are studying the data. And, and, and the overwhelming consensus of, of both the scientific uh, uh, community and the governments that they're advising is that we human beings are the primary cause of that global issue. And, and that, of course, inevitably means that people are looking for solutions. Uh, some are placing their hopes in, in world governments. You know, we were all looking avidly, or some of us anyway, at the uh, TV screens for the, the COP26 summit um, and, and hoping that the world governments would not only agree on what needs to be done, but might actually get on and 
do some of it. And, and of course, if, if there's one thing COP26 highlighted, it's that a lot more people want to see change than maybe actually willing to change. That's a, a thing we've got to try and deal with. And so unsurprisingly, some other people uh, in the culture are kind of placing their faith in groups like Extinction Rebellion or in individuals like Greta Thunberg or who, who kind of carry a much more radical message of, of disruptive action in order to avoid imminent disaster. Um, others are hoping, of course, that technology will come along and save the day, and, and I think inevitably it will play a fairly significant part, but of course it's no panacea, is it? Um, but then when it comes to Christian responses, the, these, it, it seems to me, have tended to kind of swing a bit like a pendulum towards the extremes. So, so on the one hand, some parts of the church have put creation care uh, uh, to be kind of the main focus of, of their mission, um, but of course the danger in doing that is that as the church we've already been given a great commission from the Lord Jesus and that's to, uh, which isn't to save the planet from environmental catastrophe but it's actually as Matthew 28, 19 tells us it's to go and make disciples of all nations. So, so any approaches to creation care that result in diverting the church away from its disciple making priority need to be guarded against. But, but of course to be honest um, uh, that kind of an approach it, it seems to me tends to be mainly prevalent in the more theologically liberal parts of the church who never quite seem to get around to talking about the gospel anyway but in the more evangelical parts of the church I think the pendulum has often swung to the opposite extreme where, where we've perhaps taken a sort of maybe a surface level reading of passages like Matthew 24 2 Peter 3 or Revelation 20:21, those kind of passages and concluded that it's all going to burn when Jesus returns and so what's the point in looking after it now we, we you know we ought to be concentrating on saving souls not saving the planet so so I, I came across a quote from uh, the Victorian uh, evangelist D.L. Moody who said I, I look upon this world as a sinking ship and the Lord has given me a lifeboat and said save all you can and, and whilst I love Moody's zeal for evangelism there that's that's brilliant if we view the world as a sinking ship where the only thing that can be retrieved from the wreckage is is individual human souls you know that the earth itself is somehow beyond redemption i think that's pretty hard to square with the the message of scripture itself as i think we'll we'll see so so against those two kind of extremes that often seem to characterize christians responses to to climate change i thought we might do a little survey of of what uh, some of the scriptures teach about god's plan for his creation so there's this kind of theology of ecology <laughs> if you will um, because although we might think that concern for the planet is a new thing it's just kind of come up because of climate change actually it isn't god himself has been talking about it from the moment that he created it um, and so as we as we briefly survey uh, a bit of that uh, I think that what we'll find in the scriptures ought to be deeply motivating for us actually to, to want to care not for souls alone but for everything that God has made so uh, if you've got an outline in front of you there, there's I've put a few reasons why we, we, we should uh, think about doing that and, and the first reason is to do with creation's owner I'm going to put scriptures up on the screen because I'm going to go through quite a few and I thought you you'll get thumb ache if you're thumbing through them all so I thought I'll, I'll put some up on the, uh, the screen for us as well so here's a bit about creation's owner um, in the beginning God created the heavens 
and the earth. So who, who does the earth belong to there? God created the heavens and the earth. Or, or here's Psalm 24 verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, or, or everything in it. In other words, the world and those who dwell therein. So, so the earth is God's and everything in it. I think that sentence is dynamite actually don't don't you it, it, it certainly ought to blow apart any notions we have about the world and about our place within the world because that, that sentence says that none of it is ours none of it is ours it all belongs to him god is the landowner of planet earth and everything on it which means that we are not free to use it as we want but we're responsible to him for how we use it and how we pass it on and, and that's because, as Genesis 1 tells us, he created it from nothing. Um, and and, and, and uh, uh, Genesis 1 also tells us that when he created it, God himself said that his creation was good. You, you might know right through the, the creation account in Genesis 1, we're told that God saw what he had created and that it was good. Uh, and then at the end of that uh, uh, creating in uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good good so, so god proclaims that his creation is very good in other words god's creation matters to god you know it's it's precious to him and, and that goodness of creation is quite independent of its usefulness to us uh at genesis 1 uh, god starts calling creation good before he creates people in other words it's its value to god is not simply because it serves our purposes now, it's good because he made it. Uh, indeed, the, the, the goodness of God's creation points to the greatness of the God who, who created it. Its, its existence, its beauty, its, its diversity, its abundance is a display uh, of what God is like. So, so in that sense, creation speaks. It has a voice. It speaks of the goodness of the creator. So Psalms like 148 there that we read a bit earlier on actually call on creation to praise its creator because its very existence is the proof of how great and worthy of worship our God is. Do, do you see? Um, and, and there is one very good reason straight away, isn't there, why Christians should care for creation. And it's because our God cares for his creation he created it he sustains it he considers it very good it's precious to him he loves it and it's very biodiversity it's it's abundance it's variety it's beauty speaks of what god is like which means of course that when we spoil god's creation and strip it of its biodiversity it disfigures that display of God's glory. But it also means that when we, as God's people and we as humanity, act to uh, save that species or campaign to prevent that loss of habitat or, or make buying choices that help to replant forests rather than lose them, we're actually acting to preserve that little display of God's glory. We're, we're, we're acting to help, uh, help it to keep pointing and giving glory to, to the creator. Do, do you see? Um, and so for us to love and care about what God loves and cares about, to, to want to preserve and enhance it uh, uh, rather than perhaps you know, plunder and pillage it, um, 
that is surely, isn't it, just the natural outworking of our love for the Creator. In other words, our careful creation is to reflect our love for the Creator. And, and we'll want to do that, um, what will motivate us to do that, as, a, as we start to see creation as God sees it. Um, so I think any sort of theology of ecology, <laughs> I think it begins with the fact that, that creation's owner is God. Uh, another thing that, that a, a survey throws up, though, is about creation stewards. Um, in other words, the earth belongs to God, but has been given over to humanity. So, so here's uh, Genesis 1, 28 to 30. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed uh, that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. Uh, you shall have them for food. And to every living beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. So, so the, in what's often called the creation mandate, if you like, God declares that humankind is to have dominion, is the word that's used there, dominion over creation. And that is partly in order to meet our needs, you know, like our need for food, verse uh, 29 uh, uh, reminds us of that. Just an aside there, that isn't the Bible mandating vegetarianism. Maybe a good thing. It's not uh, to do anyway, but it isn't God mandating it, because although he says there every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have for food, he also says in, in Genesis 9 after the flood, he, he kind of extends that to include every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. So God does give us dominion in part in order for us to meet our needs, including our need for food and even uh, 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 for meat. But the language of dominion, I think, is often misunderstood to imply that Christians, uh, humans, are to kind of dominate the world and, and somehow kind of, you know, bash it into shape to suit our, our purposes. And, and, and indeed, that kind of uh, language has been used to, uh, you know, in the past, uh, justify, you know, exploitation of, of, of some of the planet's resources. But I think that if we read the verses in their context, we can see that dominion is not the same thing as domination. Um, uh, so we've seen already that the world's owner is God and that he considered the world good uh, even before he created humanity. And so it's not just good for us and our purposes, but it's good for God. And indeed it was good even before we came along. So, so any idea of dominion as being about the kind of selfish rule of creation simply for our own ends... That's not really supported by scripture. And in fact, God shows us what dominion looks like in the next chapter of Genesis, in, in Genesis 2, 15, where, where God says this. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And, and the, the Hebrew word for, for keep there, it means to, means to kind of keep clean or to preserve, to guard. In other words, our mandate to rule and have dominion is much more about responsible stewardship and caring and protecting what is owned and loved by God and has been entrusted to our care 
than it is about imagining that we as humans have some kind of license from God to take what we want from it regardless of the consequences, you know, just for our, our wealth or our comfort or our pleasure or our convenience or whatever. So, so dominion does not mean domination. Our mandate, if you like, is, is like a, a sacred responsibility uh, to keep and care for and steward the world that God has uh, entrusted us with. Um, and although uh, we haven't really got time to uh, um, look at them all now, you can see a number of examples in the Old Testament where, where God gives um, uh, yeah, examples to his people about how to exercise that stewardship. So uh, you might remember he talks in Leviticus 25 about not abusing the soil, for example, resting the land every seven years, or Deuteronomy 20, he talks about uh, uh, soldiers not destroying fruit trees, uh, even when they're attacking an enemy city. He, he talks in Proverbs 12 about cruelty towards animals as being evidence of wickedness, for example, which has implications. Uh, doesn't it? Be because even though the Bible does give us permission to, to eat meat, to keep animals and so on, it does call on us to care about the treatment of the animals uh, uh, that we use uh, and we keep. In other words, it, it matters to God how his creation is cared for, and so it must matter to us as well. And, and surely that must extend, mustn't it, to caring about how the meat we eat is produced or the conditions that animals are kept in or the way that they're killed, uh, and so on. It's got to include that, hasn't it? Um, so the, the, the big picture there is, is that creation's owner is God, creation's stewards are humanity, and, and so although we are free to use the world's resources to meet our needs and, and enable us to be fruitful and, and multiply, we are not free to do those things in ways that abuse the creation that's been given to us to care for. So we're not free to abuse the soil or the animals or the trees or indeed the environment generally. Yes, we, we, we can subdue it, rule it, work it and so on, but in ways that value it and guard it and protect it and care for it, not in ways that simply plunder it for our own convenience or our own prosperity or whatever it might be. In other words, dominion is about responsible stewardship rather than about kind of destructive domination, uh, if you like. So, seen a bit about creation's owner and creation's stewards. Let's think a little bit about creation's curse. Uh, because the Bible tells us that the entrance of sin into the world has broken the relationship, not, not only between us and God and, and us and, and each other, but also broken the relationship between us and the rest of creation as well. We see this, uh, of course, in Genesis 3, don't we, as, as God curses that relationship because of our sin. Uh, here's Genesis 3, 17 to 19. Uh, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat at the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, so here we see, uh, don't we, humanity's relationship with the earth itself coming under a, a curse because of our sin. And friends, that is inevitable, isn't it? When, when God's image bearers decide that they don't want to image him anymore, 
or, or when God's rulers over creation decide that they won't rule over it his way but their way instead, then the world that they're supposed to be ruling over faces the consequences of that, doesn't it? Um, in, in fact, Romans 8, you, you'll probably know, describes the fact that not only do we, do, do God's people groan and long for the day when God's saving work is complete, but that actually creation itself groans and longs for it too, because it means the earth's liberation from the effects of our sin. Do, do you see? Um, so, so, of course, it, it's, it, it's not hard to see, is it, how environmental catastrophes are connected with human sin. We shouldn't find that a surprise. Uh, that, that our uh, humanity's selfishness or greed or exploitation or wastefulness or haste um, uh, m might cause that and, and lead not only to destructive consequences for the environment, you know, it spoils and, and mars God's good creation that points to him and displays his glory, but actually also leads to equally destructive consequences for many of the world's poorest people. Um, who, who are often the ones who face the worst consequences of the environmental damage, even though it's, it's largely the, the, the greed of the more industrialised parts of the world that have, that have caused it. Uh, of course, we can be quite quick, can't we, to blame governments or blame corporate giants here, uh, can't we, um, who, who are more ready to talk about it, maybe, but less ready to, to take the action. I think Greta Thunberg famously said the other week, didn't she, at, at COP26, she called it a two-week festival of blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, but, but of course, you know, the, the reality is that actually individuals are no different, are we? Um, we, we want cheap food, we want fast fashion, we want convenience that we've got used to, even though that comes at a cost to the environment and to some of the world's poorest people. In, in other words, friends, we can't separate the climate issues that we're facing from their roots in human sin. And, and that sin is not just present in the politicians and big business, it's present in all of us, isn't it? Here's how the prophet Hosea uh, describes it. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. There's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Do, do you see the kind of uh, uh, the, the, the pattern that's going on there? Humans reject God in, in verse 1. Humans hurt each other in verse 2. The environment suffers, verse 3. And friends, that's what human sin does, isn't it? To be in rebellion against God is a disaster for our world, not only for our relationships. So there's a little bit about creation's curse. What about creation's hope? Because if you go back into Genesis chapter 3, where we read about creation's curse, we also get a little glimpse of what God will do, don't we? Here's Genesis 3.15, okay, where, where God says to the, to the serpent, doesn't he, to, to, to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall crush his heel. So, so as, as God 
curses the, the serpent, Satan, for his, his deception of Eve, he, he gives us this little hint here that, that an offspring of Eve, literally it's a seed of, of Eve, will bruise or will crush the head of the snake, of Satan himself. And of course, we know, you know, this side of the cross, that it's, it's the Lord Jesus and his work on the cross that's being pointed to there. It's, it's Christ on the cross who crushes Satan once and for all. But back in the book of Genesis, it was hoped that Noah might be that person. Maybe he's the offspring of Eve who will bring relief from God's curse uh, on the ground. Here's Genesis chapter 5. Uh, 28 and 29 when Lamech had lived for 182 years he fathered a son and he called his name Noah saying out of the ground that the Lord has cursed this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands do, do you see um, and actually as, as we know God does use Noah doesn't he to rescue a remnant of humanity from the flood his, his judgment on the earth but God's act of rescue through Noah which of course points us to the greater rescue to come is not only to save a remnant of humanity on the ark is it but a remnant of the animal kingdom as well who are included with Noah in the ark and not just livestock for them to to eat but also wild animals as as uh, chapter 8 uh, makes clear and and then if you remember after the flood uh, you'll know that God makes a covenant with Noah doesn't he but again not just with Noah uh, but uh, chapter 9 um, behold I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast uh, of, the, uh, of the earth. Um, and actually, not only that, verse 13, he goes on even further and, and says that the first rainbow will be a sign of the covenant between him and the earth. I have set my bow in the cloud and that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Do, do you see? So, so although, you know, as we've said, Noah turns out not to be the, uh, you know, the righteous redeemer of creation who will crush the head of Satan and reverse the effects of the fall. It's, it's Jesus who will do that on the cross. Yet notice that here in the covenant uh, that God is not only committing himself to preserving his people until that, that final redeemer comes, but in preserving the very earth itself until its redeemer comes. You see? And that's why, friends, in, in Romans 8, creation groans as it longs for God's people to be made perfect. It's because then the whole of creation will be made perfect too. And, and actually, you'll, you'll know this, the rest of the Bible from, from Genesis onwards traces the history of Noah's family line through Abraham and Israel and David and, and, and so on, looking for, a, a, uh, for that promised redeemer. And of course, as the, as the Old Testament narrative unfolds, so we find that all of those people fall short, just like Noah did. Uh, but, but the Old Testament prophets look forward to someone who would come, a future king, who, who would not only redeem God's people, but would also redeem his creation with them. Such that Isaiah uh, 11 says, the whole earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
Uh, and of course, what the prophets uh, foretold in the Old Testament, what they looked forward to, we find Christ in the New Testament fulfilling, such that when he died on the cross, it wasn't just us he was saving, <coughs> but rather, as Colossians 1.20 puts it, he was reconciling all things to himself, whether on earth or heaven, uh, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do, do, do you see? God is not only saving us from our sin, but he's promising to save the earth from our sin as well, which is why the Bible tells us over and over again that all of history is headed not towards us Christians being taken away somewhere else, you know, kind of up into heaven, but, but heading towards a new heaven and a new earth being revealed, Genesis, uh, Revelation 21 for example. So, so the expectation that the Bible has is not that the world is going to be annihilated, but that it's going to be radically renewed. Um, so, so 2 Peter 3, for example, is quite a, a well-known set of verses about that. And you can see it talks about the heavens being set on fire and dissolved and heavenly bodies melting as they burn. But that fire and burning imagery there is not about the fire and burning of destruction. It's about the, the fire of purification. So the world is cleansed of, of all sin and evil in order to make, verse 13 there, uh, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Um, so there's a, there's a kind of brief theology of ecology there, uh, if you like. Um, and, and, and I don't know about you, I found that actually very encouraging and very challenging. Um, it, it's very encouraging because it tells us that the planet will be saved, but it won't be saved by us. Humanity will not save the planet. But nevertheless, it will be saved. Indeed, it will be renewed and made perfect. But by someone who loves and cares about it way more than any of us do, and who is much more capable of saving it. And I, I think that has direct application for how we think about environmental Issues, You know, questions like, should we recycle more or should we consume less meat or sh how much should we travel or, you know, how much should we buy from ethical sources and so on. And, and it seems to me that all of those things that I've just mentioned, there are many others as well, are, are actually great and necessary things for us to do. But our motivation for doing them will not be the same as Greta Thunberg or I Extinction Rebellion. It will not be because we must save the planet. Because, friends, humanity in its sin cannot save the planet. But God will save the planet. But rather, our motivation will be one of wanting to demonstrate with our lifestyles, this is where the challenge is, I think, that we, as God's people, care about God's creation, as he does. And, and so we'll take seriously our role to steward it under him so that we don't simply want to collude with the plundering of it that we see all around us in the west you know treating it like a hire car that's been given to us by some sort of nameless faceless corporation that we don't really care about because our world is not that it's the good property of the god who made us and has revealed himself to us and has invited us to care for the world just like he does and so, friends, it, it seems to me that care for creation is a vital and, and perhaps uh, neglected part of our Christian witness 
uh, and discipleship. Uh, I think that's a challenge to us. And not only that, but it's a missed opportunity for evangelism. Because, as, as we've seen, that the Christian motivation for creation care is radically different to that of the world around us. And that's because at the root of the world's abuse of the planet is human sin. And so the ultimate hope for the planet is to be found in Jesus Christ. And so although the Great Commission to you know, make disciples of the Lord Jesus doesn't replace the creation mandate, so it doesn't let us off the hook in caring for God's world as, as part of what it means to follow Christ. Yet the Great Commission does eclipse the creation mandate in the sense that the greatest crisis facing humanity is not the threat of global warming. It's the impending reality of God's judgment on our rejection of him and so humanity's urgent need of his rescue. And, and so our, our approaches, I think, to creation care should both reflect the importance of it as part of living out what it means to follow Christ and point people to Christ through lifestyles that are Christ-like and creation care is Christ-like. But our approaches must also reflect that unless we're actively proclaiming Christ and the good news of redemption in Christ for us and for the world we won't be doing the best thing that we can do for our planet, which is to win disciples of the Lord Jesus. That, 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 so that his saving work would be completed and creation itself liberated from the bondage that it groans to be released from. Now, we said at the beginning, churches can often kind of swing like pendulums to the extremes on this. And, and, and either so adopt creation care as its mission that the task of making disciples gets ignored, or else we ignore creation care altogether as though saving souls is the only thing that matters and anything else is a distraction. But it seems to me that's a false distinction. And that when we look, in, uh, look at, at uh, creation care in terms of the gospel itself, that then we see that it's not something in competition with disciple-making, it's something that's part and parcel of it. Um, let me give you a quick example of that. P part of disciple-making is calling people to repent, isn't it? To turn away from sin and turn to Christ. And, and as we do that, part of that is not only going to be about calling people to repent in areas of you know, sexual immorality or drunkenness or, or, or whatever it might be, but it's also going to be repenting from the greed and the selfishness leading to the overconsumption and the wasteful lifestyles. Uh, and instead to live lives that consider others and, and love others in how we live them. So, so it will involve us in recognising that sin is not only individual but it's communal. And that it's our communal, you know, as a, as, a, as, a, as a West, it's our communal greed and mismanagement that's caused other parts of the world to become wealthy, uh, our, our parts of the world to become wealthy at the expense of other parts of it. Do, do, do you see? So I think it's a false distinction to imagine that care for creation is somehow in competition with the task of discipleship. If, if we view environmental issues in gospel terms... And if we engage in creation care, recognising that the root is in human sin, so its ultimate hope is in Jesus Christ, then we won't give up the unique gospel task of the church because we'll understand that what creation needs above everything else, indeed what creation itself groans and longs for, will come about through more gospel, not less gospel. Ah. Uh, 
So there's a little survey of some biblical material. I hope I didn't give you too much all at once there. I might well have done that, but hey-ho. Um, uh, we've got some little implications of it teased out as well. Uh, let me pray for us, and then on the other side, you'll see some, some questions that we can discuss a little bit on our tables with whatever time we've got left. Um, let me pray. Gracious Father, we thank you. Um, thank you for helping us to listen to your word in this area, which is perhaps an area of, of uh, discipleship witness that, that uh, we often neglect, and so maybe a particular challenge to us. <laughs> Um, But we can see, too, the opportunities here to view these issues in gospel terms such that they become not distractions from gospel ministry, but aids to it. uh, Ways through which our words and our lives together can commend the Lord Jesus. Um, So please help us to discuss these things in ways that will build up each other and bring glory to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.